Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled, Because You Care About Your Patients with ROS1 Positive Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Revolutions in Treatment with Emerging ROS1 Inhibitors, is provided by Axis Medical Education and supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Robert Mosharnik. Hello and welcome to this educational activity titled, Because You Care About Your Patients with ROS1 Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Revolutions in Treatment. I am Dr. Robert Macharnik, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Medicine, and I am joined today by Dr. Alexander Drillon, Associate Attending Physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, New York. Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here is our financial disclosure information. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. Today we will review and evaluate the most recent clinical data and provide expert insights on ROS1 rearrangement positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Let's start with a brief discussion on the epidemiologic and biologic aspects of ROS1-positive non-small cell lung cancer. ROS1 fusions are structurally similar to other fusions that are found in non-small cell lung cancer, such as ALK, RET, and NTRAC fusions. As you can see in this slide, these fusions include the kinase domain shown in red, and these occupy the three prime position, while in the five prime or upstream position, there are a variety of different upstream gene partners. These fusions, when they're in frame and include the kinase domain, are activating in vitro and in vivo and result in oncogenesis. In terms of clinical features, ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers tend to look similar in terms of the phenotype to other fusion-positive lung cancers. These features include having a never-smoking history or a former light-smoking history and a younger median age. In terms of pathologic features, these cancers tend to be adenocarcinomas in the majority. And while in some other fusions, like ALK fusion-positive lung cancers, you may see certain typical features like signet ring cells in a proportion of cases, that's not very common for ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers. So while we are seeing a phenotype of a common group of patients who might harbor ROS1 fusions in their lung cancer, one major point is that we should not be biased with screening these patients for ROS1 fusions. Dr. Drillon, how do clinicians detect these ROS1 fusions in patients with non-small cell lung cancer? There are several different methods for detecting ROS1 fusions in lung cancers. A common method in the past has been FISH or fluorescence in situ hybridization, which involves break-apart probes where the presence of a fusion causes two different colored probes to break apart under the microscope. However, more and more, we're using contemporary and comprehensive assays such as next-generation sequencing, which in addition to interrogating ROS1, also look for other actionable 
oncogenic drivers in non-small cell lung cancer, such as EGFR mutations, ALK fusions, RET fusions, MET-exon-14 splice site alterations, recognizing that non-small cell lung cancers uh, harbor many of these actionable signatures. Other assays which can um, serve as a surrogate for detecting ROS1 fusions include immunohistochemistry. And what we're looking for with immunohistochemistry is the expression of ROS1 or overexpression. One thing to remember, even with our more contemporary assays that are DNA-based, is that some of these next-generation sequencing assays aren't perfect at picking up all possible ROS1 fusion events. And in this slide, you see a study that looked at patients whose cancers were quote-unquote driver negative. What we did for those cases was employed RNA-based sequencing with anchored multiplex PCR to look for drivers which were not found by MSK impact. In about 15% of cases, a variety of different fusions were detected, including ROS1, that were not picked up by prior sequencing. And this highlights that moving into the future, we may need to be very thoughtful about possibly including RNA-based sequencing as a means of maximizing the likelihood of detecting ROS1 fusions in lung cancer patients. Will you take us through the available ROS1 targeted therapies for the treatment of ROS1 um, positive non-small cell lung cancer and the data and guideline recommendations that support their use in this patient population? Several targeted therapies are available for the treatment of ROS1 rearranged lung cancers. And these are tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are ATP competitive or type 1 and bind the active conformation of the ROS1 kinase, therefore shutting down oncogenic growth in these cancers. We're first going to start with the early generation targeted therapies. And in this slide, you see the outcomes of the Profile 1001 trial, which was the seminal trial that looked at the activity of a ROS1 TKI for patients with ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers. As you can see here, crizotinib was given at the recommended phase 2 dose of 250 milligrams twice daily, and the primary endpoint of objective response rate is shown on the lower left with an objective response rate that was high at north of 70%. And as shown on the right in this waterfall plot, the vast majority of patients had disease regression with this therapy, several of whom had complete responses to crizotinib, highlighting that this is a very effective therapy. Beyond response, the duration of disease control was very durable. On the left, you see the duration of response, the median of which was almost 18 months, and a median progression-free survival on the right um, of north of 19 months, which is longer than what we expect to see in terms of median PFS with ALK fusion-positive lung cancers. And patients with ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers seem to stay on crizotinib for a much longer period of time compared to those with ALK fusion-positive lung cancers. The next early generation agent is seritinib, and this was tested in a phase two South Korean trial where it was given at 750 milligrams once daily. Similar to crizotinib, the objective response rate was high and in excess of 60%. And you'll see that the waterfall plot, albeit having a smaller number of patients, on the right you'll note that it looks similar to the outcomes that we see with crizotinib. However, 
we know that seritinib in terms of safety compared to crizotinib um, does have a, a somewhat more toxic profile in terms of gastrointestinal side effects at the full dose. And so this drug is not as widely used despite the fact that this data is out there and seritinib is listed in the NCCN guidelines. The third drug that we'll discuss today is entrectinib. And this was one of the more recent approvals by the FDA for the treatment of ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers. Results in the table are pooled from three different trials, the ALCA, Star Trek 1, and Star Trek 2 trials. And in this series, we have patients with ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers who were TKI naive. Entrectinib was given at 600 milligrams orally once daily with an objective response rate of 77%, a median follow-up of 15.5 months for which the median duration of response was approaching 25 months. On this subsequent slide, you see the waterfall plot of entrectinib in all patients with ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers. You'll see again that the vast majority of patients had disease shrinkage. We're again seeing complete responses. And what you'll note in addition on this slide is the activity of the drug in patients with central nervous system disease, meaning those with brain metastases. We'll note that this series probably had the best characterization of the intracranial outcomes of a ROS1 TKI, as the prior series, Profile 10001, did not report on the outcomes in patients with brain mets, um, and we have very little data from the seritinib trial. The punchline here is that these patients with brain metastases also did very well on this drug, entrectinib, which was designed to be a CNS-penetrant TKI. Here on this slide, we're seeing the progression-free survival with entrectinib was comparable to that of crizotinib at a median of 19 months. Um, however, what we like to see in a drug with very good CNS penetration is that possibly we're delaying the onset uh, CNS metastases. And as you can see in the table on the upper right, the median progression-free survival in patients without CNS disease at baseline was longer at 26 months. Um, and in this paper, there was an additional analysis of median time to CNS events for which the median was not reached. How do we put all of this data together? As you'll see in this table, we have three of the drugs that we discussed, along with later generation agents that we'll talk about in more detail in the next section. And what you'll take home from this table is the fact that in terms of response, objective response rates are fairly high and comparable across all of these agents. And if you look at median progression-free survival, while we like to see a longer median PFS for later generation drugs, thus far in this early data, we're still not seeing a very big differentiation in terms of median progression-free survival. But of course, we'll see what happens with much more mature data. With the later generation drugs, there's been much more of an exploration of the activity in the CNS in patients with brain metastases. And thankfully, with drugs such as entrectinib, lurlatinib, and repotrectinib, we're seeing very good intracranial response rates and overall disease control. Finally, 
will know that the safety profile is somewhat different between these agents. Crizotinib is a well-known drug and is known to cause a variety of side effects, um, including visual changes and, in some patients, peripheral edema. Sertinib tends to have, at the full dose of 750 milligrams daily, a substantial GI side effects, and therefore to abrogate those or to minimize the impact on the GI system, we are able to give the drug at a lower dose of 450 milligrams once daily with food. Um, entrectinib, I should mention, is somewhat different in its profile from the other two drugs because it is also an effective tract inhibitor, and thus we're seeing some tract inhibition-mediated side effects such as weight gain, paresthesias, we can see dizziness or ataxia, um, cognitive changes very rarely in some patients. And something to watch out for would be pain flare when patients come off entrectinib because these drugs are known to modulate the threshold for feeling pain. Finally, on this slide, we see warnings or precautions that are on the label for crizotinib, sertinib, and entrectinib that you can look at very carefully. However, I did want to point out that these three agents can be very tolerable. Summarizing the current approval data and guidelines data for these agents, and you'll note that with first-line therapy, crizotinib and entrectinib are preferred and have FDA approval with larger data sets compared to certinib, which is listed in the guidelines but is not as widely used for the reasons we mentioned earlier. There are subsequent therapies like lorlatinib that we will discuss in the next section. Thank you, Dr. Drillon. Very exciting data with crizotinib, seritinib, and now entrectinib in ROS1 rearranged lung cancers. I understand that there are also additional data for other TKIs in ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer. Can you review these available data? We do know that, unfortunately, patients can develop resistance to earlier generation ROS1 TKIs. And on this slide, we have one series showing us the profile of ROS1 kinase domain mutations that can occur after the acquisition of resistance to crizotinib. You'll see that in many patients in the red slice of the pie, a solvent front mutation can occur, such as the ROS1G2032R mutation. However, there is a substantial proportion of cases, as you'll see in the blue slice, where we don't see a ROS1 mutation emerge. That being said, we still need next generation or later generation agents that hopefully address these resistance mechanisms. And one such drug is an older drug called cabozatinib, which is a type 2 inhibitor that's approved for other indications in the cancer world. In this particular series that you're looking at in this slide, there was a patient who had developed resistance to crizotinib whose cancer acquired one of these solvent front substitutions, who was then put on a trial of cabozatinib. And as you can see on the right, thankfully this patient had a robust response, noted not just in terms of um, the CAT scan, but also in terms of metabolic response on this PET. A phase two trial is ongoing to address the activity of cabozatinib in a larger number of patients. The second drug is lorlatinib, a drug that has activity against ROS1 and ALK. 
As mentioned, these later generation drugs have been explored in the ROS1 TKI naive setting, and those results are shown in this slide, where we're seeing an objective response rate of more than 60%, with a median duration of response of almost 17 months for lorlatinib in TKI naive patients. Here we have the summary of the activity of lorlatinib in patients who have received prior ROS1 tyrosine kinase inhibition. The first thing you'll note is that in comparison to the data we presented earlier, the objective response rate in these patients is lower and is 26%, so much lower than the 60 80 to 80% response rates that we saw in the TKI naive setting. The median progression-free survival is also lower at eight and a half months and really less than half of what we saw earlier with some of the agents where the median progression-free survival was 19 months. Even though we know that lorlatinib can work well for patients who have previously had a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, it's important to know that the drug has not been shown to work extremely well against all kinase domain mutations. And at least in this early series, we're not seeing dramatic responses to G2032R containing cancers with lorlatinib. And so we're looking hopefully to other agents who may have activity in this space. There is another next-generation drug called repotrectinib, and the results in TKI-naive patients are shown in this slide. Unsurprisingly, we're seeing a high response rate at north of 80%. This drug was also explored in the central nervous system, and you'll see the waterfall plot on the very right. A small N, but in these three patients, we did see intracranial disease regression in all three cases. However, what we're looking to see with this drug is also the activity of the drug after patients have progressed on a prior tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And if you'll note on the table on the left, again, we're seeing a similar pattern to what we were seeing earlier with lorlatinib where the objective response rates are lower, and in this series, at approximately 40%. Thankfully, as you'll see in the waterfall plot, many of these patients have disease regression with therapy, and that we're also seeing disease regression intracranially with this agent. So putting these side by side, you'll note that, as we mentioned earlier, the response rate to later generation TKIs is lower than we see in the TKI naive space. One thing that it would be good to point out is that we're seeing earlier data cuts for these patients. As you can see on this slide, only 18 patients for repotrectinib, 34 patients for lorlatinib. So it would be good to see what happens as we get more patients onto these trials. We are comforted by the fact that these drugs do have activity against central nervous system disease. The main distinguishing feature between repotrectinib and lorlatinib thus far has been the likelihood of the drug working against some of the trickier solvent front mutations such as ROS1G2032R. As you saw in an earlier slide, lorlatinib did not work against these patients whose cancers harbor these mutations. However, we do know that repotrectinib has activity against the solvent front mutation. And several patients whose cancers harbor these mutations after progression on a prior TKI um, have had confirmed responses to repotrectinib. Of course, we'll see what the data looks like when more patients are accrued to these drug development programs. 
Ripotrectinib continues to be explored on a phase 1-2 trial for patients with ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers. This is called the Trident trial, and it is open for patients who have not had a prior ROS1 TKI, in addition to patients who have progressed on a prior ROS1 inhibitor. Dr. Drillon, can you share with us a case example of a patient with ROS1-positive non-small cell lung cancer? We have a 34-year-old woman, never smoker, who presents with worsening shortness of breath. She sees a local provider who orders a workup that includes a CAT scan and an MRI of the brain. Unfortunately, the CT scan reveals a left lung mass, lymphadenopathy, and several liver metastases. And the MRI brain also unfortunately reveals multiple sub-centimeter brain metastases. The patient is thankfully asymptomatic from a CNS perspective and denies any neurologic symptoms or worsening headaches. A biopsy of one of the liver lesions is performed and this reveals adenocarcinoma consistent with a lung primary. And the unused tissue is sent for molecular profiling, which does not reveal a sensitizing EGFR mutation or an ALK fusion. For this case, it's important to keep in mind that non-small cell lung cancer can harbor many different actionable signatures. It is thus critical to consider a comprehensive next-generation sequencing test to look for these other drivers. Next-generation sequencing of the remaining tumor was performed, which thankfully showed a CD74 ROS1 fusion, one of the most common events in the ROS1 fusion space, which we know can be activating and lead to oncogenesis. And the question, of course, is now that we found a ROS1 fusion in this patient, how do we proceed with treatment? We know that there are three TKIs that have been tested in this space, crizotinib, entrectinib, and seritinib. We know that the first two have FDA approval. And if we look at the top-line data for these agents side-by-side, side, we'll note that the overall response rate and median progression-free survival do not look very different. However, one distinguishing feature of the entrectinib regulatory data set is that it featured a high proportion of patients with brain metastases. More than 40% of patients had brain metastases at baseline. And we know that in the series that there was a high intracranial response rate in excess of 50% and also very good and durable disease control in patients who had brain metastases. So the choice for this patient by this provider was to use entrectinib. The patient had a very durable overall response to therapy, not just extracranially, but also intracranially with multiple brain metastases shrinking. And the patient stayed on for two and a half years. Unfortunately, as is what occurs with early generation therapy, the patient then developed progressive disease. This first manifested as solitary site progression with a single brain metastasis, and the patient was asymptomatic at the time this happened. This patient was sent for local therapy and underwent SRS and had a good response to stereotactic radiosurgery. This kept things quiet for another half year 
after which the patient showed additional multifocal progression extracranially with growing disease in the lung, lymph nodes, and the liver, along with new bone metastases. At this point, the patient did not have worsening disease in the CNS and remained asymptomatic. So the subsequent question would, of course, be how would you treat this patient moving forward? We know that in this situation, we can give a patient a next-generation TKI, either lorlatinib, that's currently in the NCCN guidelines, or ribotrectinib, which is currently on an ongoing clinical trial. We know that if you were to do sequencing at this point and found a ROS1 mutation such as the G2032R, that might push us to give this patient ribotrectinib if that's available based on the data against solvent front mutations where we see activity with repotrectinib and not with lorlatinib. However, it's also important to note that first-line platinum doublet containing chemotherapy is a viable treatment option for these patients. For this particular patient, lorlatinib was available on a clinical trial at the time of progression. The patient responded with a year of disease control. She thereafter developed disease progression and was switched to carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab, and she remains on this therapy with a durable, ongoing response two years into therapy with maintenance treatment. Finally, can you provide us with some key takeaways from today's presentation and the treatment of patients with ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer? The key takeaways from this session are that ROS1 fusions are oncogenic drivers of non-small cell lung cancers. And while they're found in 1% to 2% of unselected cases, when you consider the fact that there are a lot of lung cancer diagnosed globally each year, this adds up to a substantial number of patients. We also know that there are very active targeted therapies for these patients. In the early generation setting, we have crizotinib and entrectinib, and we also recently have data on later generation TKI therapies such as lorlatinib and ripotrectinib that can be effective in select situations. It's also important to point out that we know that chemotherapy can be very useful in these patients with ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers. So rolling all of that together, the important message is that you should pay attention to screening for ROS1 fusions in non-small cell lung cancer patients. And hopefully this would be done in the context of a comprehensive assay that also looks for the many other actionable oncogenic drivers that are found in these tumors. Thank you, Dr. Drillon, for this excellent review in ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer. And thank you to our audience for your participation in this activity. This activity was provided in partnership with Axis Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.